theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Adam Farkas in honor of his Ashes Chayil, Tamar Chana. That's beautiful. Thank you very much. La'arichis yom and v'shanem toivus and all the blessings. Begashmias uberuchneis. So everybody knows that the, the beginning of the Jewish story, the story of the Jewish people, begins in Parshas Lech Lecha. The first 11 chapters of Torah, the first 11 chapters of Bereshis, of Genesis, are universal. They're about the entire planet, the entire cosmos, and all of the nations and all of the peoples. And then suddenly at chapter 12, there is uh, the zooming in, right? Today we call it zooming in, into one individual. Till that point, it's a story about all of mankind, and that's very interesting. It's a story about literally all of mankind and all of womankind, but mankind includes women. And then suddenly at chapter 12, beginning of Lech Lecha, there is this radical shift. And it's such a powerful shift because it tunes into one person, And this person begins to father a family, which ultimately becomes the central narrative of the rest of Torah, and really the rest of Tanakh. So that shift is extremely uh, uh, fateful and and, and critical. And it begins with one verse, one Pasuk, the opening Pasuk of Lechelcha, which is the opening of chapter 12, Perikid Beis. And it's the first first, uh, source in your source sheets. Hashem God tells Avram, Abraham, go forth from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's home, to, to the land that I will show you. And he continues, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, you shall be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, those who curse you I will curse, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. Those are the three opening verses of Lech Lecha, in which Hashem calls to this one individual person, Avram, and gives them this faithful instruction of Lech Lecha. And indeed, the next continuation of the story is Avram heeds the call. And you see, Vayikach Avram asara ishto yasloid benachiv as kol rechushem asherachoshu sanefesh asherasu becharim vayetzul aleches artsaknan vayavoyu artsaknan. Avram takes his wife Sarai, his brother's son, his nephew Loit, all the wealth that they amassed, all the people that they influenced and mentored and made in Haran, and they set out for this journey towards the land of Canaan, they arrived in the land of Canaan. The question is very well known and very obvious, and that is a very glaring omission. Hashem is very specific to tell Avraham where he has to leave from, but completely does not share with him the destination. Right, So he says, go forth from your land. If that's not enough, I'll be clearer from your birthplace. If that's not enough, I'll be even clearer from the house of your parents, from the home of your father. And now we expect he should tell him where to go. And he could say, simply go to the land of Canaan. Avram Avinu was living in 
a place called Haran. He was born in Ur, which is today's Iraq. And by the way, ancient Ur has been excavated with archaeological diggings. So we even know the place that in ancient times was called Ur, Ur Kazdim or Ur. And Avram relocated with his father, Terach, to Haran, which is today called Haran, H-R-R-A-N, northern uh, Iraq, southern Turkey. And uh, he's told to leave there and go to Eretz Canaan, which today we know as Israel, Eretz Yisrael, the Holy Land. But he doesn't say that. In fact, nowhere in the story does he tell him where to go. How do we even know that he went to Canaan? Not because Hashem told him, because that's where he went. In Pasuk it says, Avram went to Canaan. So obviously at some point, he figured it out. But the question is, why such a glaring omission? I mean, that's the whole story. I want you to leave here, and I want you to go here. You're telling me exactly where to go from. And it's really redundant from your land, from your birthplace, from your parents' home. It's like, I'm telling you, I want you to leave the United States of America. I want you to leave New York, and I want you to leave Muncie. If you're leaving the United States of America, if I'm not mistaken, you're also leaving New York, and you're leaving Muncie. Okay, maybe Muncie is not part of, it's also part of America, no? And Corona was a little different than America. But uh, generally, if you're leaving America, you're leaving, obviously, maybe I should tell you your address, and then maybe I should tell you, you know, what your kitchen looks like. He says, leave your country. The Mepharshim struggle with that. But for whatever reason, he's extremely, Hashem is extremely specific. Where I am to leave from. Where do I go? I'll show you. <laughs> Why can't you give him an address so Avram could put it into Waze or Google Maps or GPS, whatever it looked like at the time, and go? No. So you would think in verse 2 he says it, in verse 3, Hashem never ever told him where to go. It's not recorded in the Torah. Obviously Avram figured it out. So did he ask? Was it a conversation? But the Torah makes sure to say that Hashem never told him where to go. He only told him the land that I will show you. And we know that it was Canaan because he ended up there. It says he went there. So obviously he found out that that's where Hashem wants him to go, but he was never told. What is the, what, why? What is the meaning behind this? This is such a good, such an important word. Even Rashi, the most basic commentator, asks this question. Rashi wonders, why can't you say? For example, there'll be one more Lech Lecha in Chumash. There will be one more Lech Lecha to Avram Avinu. The beginning of Avram Avinu's story and close to the end of Avram Avinu's story is both Lech Lecha, what's called the first test and the tenth test. Because at the end of Parshas Vayera, which is close to the end of Avram Avinu's life, he's already an older person. He's already over 100, 137. Hashem once again says, Lech Lecha. Vahi achir advarim eilu, valakim nisas avram, vayemir elu avram, vayemir ineni, vayemir kachna, zbincha, sechidcha, shrafta, sitzchok, velech lecha. El Eretz Hamoiria. He told him clearly where to go. I want you to go to the place called Mariah Moiria, which we still know where it is. Hara Moiria, it's the same mountain called Moiria, Adayay Mazah, they call it the Temple Mount, Harabayis, Moiria. He told him where to go. He didn't even have to tell him where to go from because he obviously knew where to go from. <laughs> but here he doesn't say it. He says, He uses the same word, which is interesting, but he doesn't say where. What's the location? I want to learn with you today one answer to this question. And the answer was presented by the Sfasemes. The Sfasemes, we quoted many times, we learned many pieces of the Sfasemes. Sfasemes is a Hasidic work on Chumash and on the holidays. It was written, authored by the third Gera Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda Arye Leib Alter. Alter is the last name from Ger. Ger is a city not far from Warsaw in Poland. 
His father passed away when he was young, so he was raised by his grandfather, Itchameir, known as the Chidushe Harim, the first Geri Rebbe, a student of the Kotzke Rebbe. The Chidushe Harim raised the Sfasemis, Rabbi Yehuda Leib, Rabbi Yehuda Ari Leib Alter, and when he passed away, he was still young, but after Reb Henech of Alexander, he became the third Geri Rebbe. His son was the Imre Emes, Rabbi Avraham Mardechai, etc. So he has a work called Sfas Emes, which means the edge of truth, or the lip of truth, Sfas Emes, Tikkan La'at, which basically compiles many of his teachings that he would share on Shabbos and Yom Tov with his followers and disciples in Poland. He passed away in 1905. Tafresh Samachei Shvat. So here is his commentary. He writes extremely, extremely brief, very cryptic, very concise, and very deep. You have to unravel the words. So that's what we'll try to do. But first, let's see what he says inside, and then we'll explain. Be'ezer Hashem Yisbarach. Svasemes lech lecha tofresh lamed beiz. Tofresh lamed beiz would be 1871. Birashi Umedrish. Rashi and Medrash asked the question, Why did he not reveal to him right away his destination? What is this, a state secret? <laughs> what would be wrong with telling Avram Avinu where to go? He did not know. The land I will show you. Pashat. It's obvious what the answer is. That is exactly what Eretz Yisrael is. <laughs> you hear what he's saying? If he would have told him where to go, it would be completely the wrong message. By telling him, go to the land I will show you, that is Eretz Yisrael. Well, what does this mean? It's not a geographical location. It is, but it's not only a geographical location. This was a journey not to a specific land. Technically, yes, he had to go to a specific land, Knan. But the journey was not geographical only. In fact, the geographical element of the journey is secondary to the emotional journey, to the existential journey. There was a different type of journey he was asking from Avram Avinu. What was that journey? I want you to go to the land that I will show you. That is the journey to which we're, the land that I will show you. Tell me where. I can't tell you where. That's not the land. You're not going. If I tell you where you're going, that's not the land you're going to. It's not where I want you to go. I want you to go to the land that I will show you where to go. What does this mean? His words is that I, will, I allow my chushim. Chushim means my senses, my faculties, and my ritzainas, my desires, my passions, to become aligned with Hashem's desire. And that's the word me'artzecha. The word me'artzecha doesn't only mean from your land. It comes from the word ratzain. Artzecha means your land. It also means the word ratzain. Lech lecha me'artzecha el ha'aretz asherareka. I want you to step away from what you perceive as your desire into a new ratzain, which I will show you. Into a new land, which I will show you. Or to put it differently, the physical terrain we call Eretz Yisrael, or at that time it was called Canaan, is not just a physical territory that has a boundary on one side and a boundary on another side and a boundary on another side and a boundary on another side. West and east and north and south, that's the physical element of the land. But there's another element that that land 
captures or embodies. And that is, it's the land where I show you. It's the land that I show you. What does this mean? The Hainu, this means, Kol this means, I may be dovuk, I may be connected to what is called in Hebrew chitzonius, externalities. Can I cast that away in order to be able to perceive what is the divine desire and then you actually learn about that desire. Then that desire becomes revealed to the person. So the only way I could find out where to go is if I don't know where to go. So that makes sense. <laughs> the only way I could find out where to go is if I don't know where to go. If I know where to go, I'll never know where to go. <laughs> you see here how such a simple omission is really teaching something that emotionally, psychologically, existentially, philosophically, is extremely profound. I'll just say it again so I could confuse myself more. The only way I know where to go is if I don't know where to go. The moment I know where to go, I'm completely lost. (laughs) I'll go to every place besides where I should be going. Now, it's a little strange. Don't we all want to know where we go? When you get into the car, don't you? Thank God for ways, right? Before, I mean, I have a lot to thank this technology because I got lost everywhere, everywhere. I mean, I lived in Brooklyn once upon a time. That was the old habitat of the Jewish people before Florida. You remember when Jews lived in Brooklyn? There was a time when Jews lived in Brooklyn. Just to get to Borough Park, I would get lost. Literally, I would get lost. It's embarrassing to say, but I was dating with my wife and I got lost every single time. <laughs> And at some point, it was so embarrassing, I thought she's just going to drop me because it's not impressive. You know, you don't want a man who's always getting lost. And I, one, one time, I really had to cover up for my humiliation. I, I said, you know, Esti, at least with me, you'll end up in unexpected places, which, is, which may be a good thing. And she bought it, you know, here I am. So, <laughs> but how much shalom bias arguments that ways save? How many? You remember those days? You went to the gas station. Oh, it still doesn't help? Okay. I thought it avoided all therapy needs. But you remember, you went to the gas station. Why couldn't you ask the guy for directions? I don't need to ask him for directions. I don't need to ask him for directions, right? (laughs) Why should I ask him that? And you were supposed to go to Miami. You ended up in California, right? You were supposed to go to London. You ended up in Eretzisro by car. So uh, thank God you put it in. Some people, by the way, still don't listen. They still don't listen, but thank God, they're smarter. They're smarter, yeah. I told ways, don't have a woman's voice because the men will not listen. They go crazy. In any case, but we all want to know where to go. It's not geschmack to get lost. Isn't that true? It's true if I want to draw, if I want to get from here to New City, or if I want to get to, from here to The City, or if I want to get from here to another location. Then Waze is wonderful, or Google Maps, I don't want to get involved in politics, even though today Google owns everything, so it's not politics, unless Elon Musk buys them off as well. But there's two types of journeys. There's a journey with a car, or a journey with a plane, and then there's a different type of journey. There's the journey of life. The journey of life is lech lecha, is going to you. 
That's not a physical journey. It's also a physical journey. We physically journey in life. There's no spiritual journey that doesn't come with a physical journey. It's a body together with a soul. But that type of journey, he says, by definition, I can't tell you where it is. By definition, if you know where it is, it's not the journey. It's something that I'll have to show you. And the only way you'll be able to be open to that is if you give up the need to know where I want you to go. How do we bring... this? These are his words. These are his words. I just explained them a little bit, but you see he writes it very briefly. And he continues. He says, Here's the point. Here's the summation. This is the type of will, the type of readiness a person is capable and ought to cultivate. To listen and to absorb that which I don't know. <laughs> I love this statement. This is the desire a person should always cultivate. The desire to listen and to perceive that which I don't know. But isn't there a point where I do know? Like... I've been around, what do they say? I've been around the block a couple of times. <laughs> I went on this journey before. I do know, no, I do know. It says in Pirkei has been chamishim When you're 50, you start giving advice. Mepharshim say, why 50? Why not 40? They say, because at the time of 50, I made enough mistakes to be able to tell people what not to do. At the age of 20, I'm brilliant. You know when mothers who just had a baby, they give parenting advice? Especially for teenagers. You ever saw that? She's 21 years old, Baruch Hashem, she has two kids in the carriage, and she tells you how it is, how you're supposed to deal with teenagers. It's wonderful, and you say, Amen. <laughs> Amen. You know, call me in 20, 20 years. But when you're 50, I made enough mistakes, I can give people advice. <laughs> you know what? It's beautiful. In a way, it's beautiful. The innocence is so important. The innocence, the idealism, and so forth. Of course, you can't listen to the advice of your mother because, you know, what does your mother know, right? Mark Twain once said, when I was nine, you know, my father was a genius. When I was 19, he was a moron. Today I'm 29, I have a bunch of kids, and he has some good advice. It's funny how much the old man learned in 10 years. (laughs) I once heard a mother tell one of her teenage children, one day you're going to find out that your mother was not as dumb as you thought she was. <laughs> One day you're going to find out mom was not as dumb as you thought she was. So in any case, isn't there a point where you know you become a master? Where you become, uh, what are they called? You, you know the trade, you know, the kens the, the, in Yiddish, the kens de fach, you know the malacha. At some point, okay. I have been caught by surprise again and again and again. But at some point, I know. See, he says, doesn't work that way. Ain't sheerly the Yisbarach. The divine knowledge has no measurement. There's no point where, okay, I mastered. I mastered the journey. It's infinite. And therefore, constantly, I can always open myself up and surrender more and more to the mystery of infinity. Vizehu, and this is the meaning of the Pasuk in Tehillim. I'll just read the whole Pasuk. It's Tehillim, Kapitel Memhe, 45. 
Shimi Bas, listen, my daughter. Ure'e, see. Ure'e, see. Vahati Oznech, and lend me your ear. So I want you to hear, I want you to see, I want you to give me your ear, my daughter. Vashichichi Amech, obeys Ovech. Can you forget your people and the home of your father? V'yisav HaMelech Yofyech. Let the king crave your beauty. What does this mean? Why would he want her to forget her people? We don't want people to. For, we don't want our daughters to forget their people. We don't want to forget their home. So the Sfasemis says there's a much, much deeper message here, and that is v'zeu shimi basurei etc. Shatamit sarich liyos bepchinis reiye v'histaklus v'hazana lekabel mashalamayla mehasagasai. I always want to be in a state where I can open my eyes and see and listen. There's seeing and there's listening. He says both. Shimi bas, shimi, uri'i, vahati oznech. There's seeing and there's shma, shma Yisrael. To absorb, lekabel, that which is beyond my comprehension. That which was beyond my hasaga. The word hasaga in Hebrew, lahasig, means to grasp something. Right to reach, lahasig is to attain. It also is the same meaning in Hebrew for the word comprehension, because when you comprehend something, essentially, you attained it not physically but intellectually. You know, when you understood a concept, it's like in your brain. Your brain wraps literally, like almost, it feels like your brain wrapped itself around this idea. Like I got it, I understand it. It's almost I own it. But can I see? Can I open my eyes and listen to that which is beyond my comprehension, beyond my hasag? It always demands that my awareness now has to be able to open itself up to something that it's maybe uncomfortable with. So that's a form of bittel. It has to surrender and be open to something that it can nullify it. Levatel can nullify it. And that's why we, it's clear, he says, this is poshet. It's obvious that's why Hashem couldn't tell Avraham Avinu where to go. Now, I'd like to take these priceless words. I wanted to say priceless gems. It's really one priceless gem in the singular, which translates into priceless gems. And, you know, bring it down somewhat or bring it up. Apply it. Apply it to our lives. What this Fasemis is teaching us here. And why this is the first commandment. This is the first mitzvah to the first Jew. This is the first communication ever from the Rebbeinu Shalaylam to Avraham Avinu. Everything follows from this statement. After Lech Lecha comes everything. Nothing happens before Lech Lecha in terms of the Jewish story. And it's in this story, in this opening commandment, where he will not say the place of the destination. But we can all readily relate to this, because the message here is not abstract at all. Even if it opens us up to transcendence, the message becomes extremely clear. Because it exists both internally and externally. Let's first begin internally and see then how it exists also externally. Meaning it exists on every journey of life. But let's first talk about my inner journey vis-a-vis myself and my relationships with the people around me. But how I respond to it. What's Artzicha? What's Meiladadicha? What's Beisavicha? Artzicha, he says, is your desires. Ratzayin, Artzicha words. I have desires. Moladetcha means that which is inborn. Moledes, molad is birth. 
In other words, things that are inborn. Maybe my genetic makeup. Base of Icha is what I learned in my parents' home. What they call nurture. Right? There's nature and there's nurture. Different levels of nature. Base of Icha is nurture. Nurture is not just my parents' home. It's my school. It's my environment. It's my community. It's my life experiences. Obviously, our most formative life experiences happen in the homes we grow up in. But they also happen in the environment we grow up in, which is an extension of the home. The community I live in, the friends, the neighbors, relatives, extended relatives, close family, nuclear family, extended family, of course, my education, my schooling, and so forth, my relationships, my friends. That's all part of the home, the, the, the culture that every person grows up in. And he says, here, I want you to step away from it. Why? Why? These are things that form people. Because lech lecha, I want you to go to you, which is another very strange expression. You don't go to you, you go with you. <laughs> when I'm journeying somewhere, I'm not journeying to me. Hopefully I was here before too. If I wasn't here before, I said, who's doing the journey? Right? It's like Jackie Mason's jokes about the day he went to, you know, you remember Jackie Mason's, it's a funny Jew. So he speaks about the day he decided to go to therapy to find himself. I come to the therapist and he says, we have to find you. He says, but who am I if I haven't found me? And how are you going to find me if I'm not here? And if I'm here, you don't have to find me. So he said, we have to find your real self. He says, where are you going to find my real self if it's not here? So he says, well, we're going to search together. And after an hour, he says, it's a $400 bill. He says, one second, but if I'm not really me, why should I pay you 400 bucks when we don't even know who I am? In fact, you may really be me and I may really be you. So you owe me $400. He says, and the guy got really upset at him. He says, you know what? I'll be fair and I'll split the tab. You give me $200 and I'll leave your office. So, lech lecha, lech lecha, very interesting expression. When we speak in modern Hebrew, we say, Lech, lech el hamakom hazeh, lech, not lech lecha. So the Alshech and the Shach al HaTorah, Sif Sekayin al HaTorah, and many Mepharshim explain, lech lecha means lech la'atzmi yusach. I want you to go to you. I want you to discover you. I want you to find your essence. Makar v'shoyrish nishmascha, the root of your soul, the atzmius, the core of who you are. For that I have to be able to have the courage to step away from Not necessarily, sometimes those places were very difficult and challenging places. Then we could understand you should step away from them. And certainly Terach was no role model for Avram Avinu. So he had to step away from family. But there's something much deeper here. It's not even if it was, sometimes we all know that sometimes people grow up in very difficult situations, sometimes dysfunctional situations, Sometimes very difficult parents, and sometimes parents who are amazing people, but are limited. <laughs> Every person can only educate with the tools that they have, and I can do the best with the tools that I have. And when I don't have those tools, I often, my communication is extremely limited. The big challenge that we have is, as we learn about those tools, and we learn about our mistakes, do we become defensive? It's very, very easy to become defensive. You know, how often does it happen that a child, once he or she is older, challenges a parent about certain things that happened? And I would tell you that one of the most, uh, I don't want to sound so sharp, but one of the most foolish things parents do is they become defensive. They start criticizing the child for his or her ungratefulness. 
You're spoiled. You're rotten. Like all of the American brats. Do you know what I grew up like? Do you know what happened to me in third grade? Do you know what my mother was like at Pesach? You know what my house looked like? What just happened? What just happened is the parent was triggered very badly. I was triggered. And we have to be able to take responsibility for our triggers. Instead of tuning into the pain that my child is experiencing. And they're coming to me because they want healing. So instead of being emotionally in tuned, I become defensive. And I want to almost crush them. And what happens then? You'll see the end of every conversation creates more distance. There's nobody to speak to, and I'll go back into my shell. And what you want, so what we want so much to be close to our children, we actually, we actually compromise that connection. But what if I could really go away from my defensiveness? It's not easy. <laughs> I could really, really listen to what the other person is saying. And it's not easy because, you know, you raised this kid. Sleepless nights, right? You start telling him, you know how many times I had to take you to the doctor when you were two years old? Every day you had an ear infection. <laughs> You had another infection. I didn't sleep for 25 years and I'm still not sleeping because of you. And I'm never going to sleep. Wow, great. That's really giving me self-confidence, mommy. Tati, thank you for sharing that. It's great to know how many sleepless nights, how I destroyed your entire life. Now let me hear how my brothers destroyed your life. No, they were unbelievable. You. <laughs> I'm doing a little humor here. But the point is, because this is a, it's a tough subject, so you need a little humor here. <laughs> But remember, every good joke is basically true. <laughs> People don't laugh if it's a complete lie. <laughs> All jest has a lot of truth, and when you want to express it, you use it through. And every joke has a little truth in it, something a lot of truth in it, and every truth has a little humor in it too. I have to be able to really open myself up to it. But here's the real deal. The journeys of life, the real journeys of life, the Svasema says, Hashem is telling Avram, You'll never anticipate. Can you really be open every day to learn about the land that I will show you? I'm going to show you today where your journey is. So just tell me where. If I tell you where, it's not your journey. The real journeys to the truest self are not something you can put into ways. It's not something you could check up on a map. It's not something you can anticipate. They say two people fail in life, those who don't have plans and those who stick to their plans. This is not something I can plan ahead and say this is exactly what it's going to look like in 20 years. Yes, we all have dreams. This is what my children are going to come out like. This is what I'm going to do and this is going to be the result. But children are not a conveyor belt. I think we mo- mo- most of us know that. I put my child on one side of the conveyor belt in pre-1A and hopefully they come out on the other side after the chuppah. Wake me up. If I could just sleep from the beginning of the conveyor belt to the ending of it, just wake me up for the nachas. I'm ready to come for the bas mitzvah of my granddaughter. That conveyor belt is not something that's just autopilot boom. There's surprises at every step of the way. How do we deal with these surprises? So some people get very frustrated. Some people get very angry. Some people get very disillusioned. The Sfasema says, no, that is the very journey of life. The very journey of life is to always ask not what my comfort zone demands from me to keep me stuck in it, but to open myself up, what is the divine calling for me at this period of my life? 
at this stage of my life. And it's true literally in every facet. It's true when it comes to marriage. How many people are experiencing the same marriage they thought they're going to have the day they became engaged? You don't have to all raise your hands simultaneously. How many people, exactly what you saw in your child when he or she was one years old, how did that turn out a decade later, two decades later, three decades later, four decades later? So we ask ourselves, am I guilty? How bad I am? What did I do wrong? Or the other way, why are they so rotten? Why are they so spoiled? Where's Akara Satoif? I constantly getting emails from people saying, why do I have kibbutz of aim and my kids don't feel they have to have kibbutz of aim? And I feel bad these parents mean well, but they're always defending themselves. They're always on the defensive mode. Look how I respect my father. You think I like them? A girl emails me, she says, my mother says to me, look how I respected my father, you know, which I tell you what he did? But zipper on my lips, why can't you be the same? And I want to explain to this mother, your daughter is not going to repress all the trauma that you did for so many generations. You did it, fine. She's not going to do it. She's going to, her father's going to have to have a real conversation with her. She's going to have to have a real conversation with her father. But we become so defensive. And the reason we become defensive is because we feel weak. We feel that we're going to get lost in the process. I'm going to lose my kids. I'm going to lose myself. I'm going to lose my dignity. Svasema so says it's the opposite. That's where you will discover your destination. Always ask yourself the question. Ask not what my child, well, ask not what your child can do for you today. Ask what you can do for your child. Ask not what Hashem can do for you. Ask what you can do for Hashem. You'll say, no, I want to ask about me. Paradoxically, you'll find a much deeper place of happiness. You will find your real destination. Because when I'm stuck in the life that I decided I have to have, every curveball will will destroy me. Every curveball will make me more frustrated. Every curveball will make me angry, disillusioned. Every curveball will either put me into a depression or put me into a combative mode or will make me freeze and paralyzed. But if I could really say, you know, what is the journey of a Jew? I want you to go to a destination. I can't tell you where because by definition, it's a destination that you can't wrap your brain around. It surprises you constantly. So what is it? It's the land that I will show you. Open yourself up to what is your mission today? What is your mission this year? What is your mission this decade? What is your mission this week? What is your mission this day? And what is your mission this hour? And it may change may change from day to day, from week to week. And really embrace it. And paradoxically, it won't take you away from yourself. Lech lecha, you will find your real self. You'll find your infinite self. You'll find your, your divine self. Shimi bas, my daughter, listen. Uri'i, see. Hati oznech. And what's the expression in Tehillim that he quotes? V'shichichi amecho beis ovich. Can you forget everything that... Your comfort zone says you shouldn't forget. What does that look like? Internally, what does that look like? Today we know that journeys don't only happen on roads and streets and highways and airspace. Journeys happen in the brain. They call them neural pathways. (laughs) They're actually real highways, by the way. They're tiny, but they're unbelievably sophisticated. They're more sophisticated than any highway or bridge. I was looking yesterday at the engineering of the Tappan Zee Bridge. Did you see the engineering of the Tappan Zee Bridge? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Something special. I don't know if you realized how they built those, those pillars, 
But on the Brooklyn Bridge, they had cables. And then they found out that people were stealing the cables. They came at night and they cut it. So on the Tappan Sea, built, they built these huge pillars. Nobody can steal them. It's interesting. <laughs> it was built based on the Ganovim of the Brooklyn Bridge. But you would think people have tithes to steal cables from the Brooklyn Bridge. If you know who did it, he should return it. But the engineering of all these bridges, which are unbelievable... The London Bridge was built through a man named Sinclair who was blind. He couldn't even see. And he engineered the London Bridge. It pales in comparison to the highways, to the bridges that our brains develop in our neurons, our neural pathways. Our neural pathways are the highways our thoughts go on. So if you say something to me, right, my thoughts start going down a highway. Your husband says something to you. Your child says something to you. Your mother says something to you. Your sister-in-law says something to you. <laughs> At the Sheva Brachus that you made for her daughter, by the way. Just to It's all in the brain. The brain has stored away unbelievable... The brain forgets nothing. Every piece of information that ever came your way, the brain stores away, and it turns it into a highway. <laughs> this highway is safe. This highway has traffic. This highway is dangerous. And we start responding instinctively. Our thoughts go down a certain direction. And what happens is we often become stuck. So every time your teenage girl says this comment, when she comes into the kitchen one in the morning, opens the refrigerator and says, there's no food in the house. I never saw a house like yours with so much food. You could feed three countries with the food in your freezer and your refrigerator besides your child. There's no food. What about all that? Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> right? My brain developed a highway. Where to go? Here I go. Whoa. And you, you, whatever it is, ungratefulness, spoiled. This girl has some serious problems. We need medication. Why can't I get the right therapist? Whatever your pathways. And it develops into a sensation. I feel unsafe, I feel uptight, I feel anger, I, I judge. It's the hardest thing to go away from that. Lech lecha. Go away. You don't have to go to the highways you're used to. But what else is there? There's one more thing. Where? Can I ask a much deeper question? And that is, what would be the response that would bring me closer to my daughter? What would be the response, therefore, that will bring me closer to Hashem? Because it's the same thing. They once asked the Balatanya, which mitzvah is a bigger mitzvah? Avas Hashem or Avas Yisrael? There's a mitzvah to love Hashem. There's a mitzvah to love every Jew. They want to know which is the bigger mitzvah. You know how you say saving a life is more important than Shabbos. Saving a life is more important than Yom Kippur. The mitzvahs sometimes are weighed against each other, like on a scale. This one. So they asked them, which one wins? Avas Hashem, Avas Yisrael. They were expecting to hear an answer. He said these words, I'll say in Yiddish. Avas Yisrael is a pirush of Avas Hashem. Avas Yisrael is a commentary on Avas Hashem. What does it mean to love Hashem? It means to love another person who is a reflection of Hashem. It's a commentary on Avas Hashem. Somebody comes to me and says, Rabbi Wari, I love you. I hate your kids. Really? How much do you love me? I love you! Your family? 
Do me a favor. You know what I mean? Do me a favor. Share that love with somebody else. person tells Hashem, you know, I love you, Hashem. Your kids, I hate every one of them. Or certainly 50% of them are really not my type. Well, if they're not your type, then I'm also not your type. <laughs> they're my children. What do you mean you love me and you hate my children? The Avas Hashem is, Avas Yisrael is a commentary. It's making it real. It's illustrating it. It's concretizing it. It's not which mitzvah wins over the other mitzvah. Real Avas Hashem is expressed in Avas Yisrael. Banim atem l'ashem alakeichem. Ahavti eschem amar Hashem. In a good marriage, even if a husband doesn't like certain things, right? He's not crazy about roses. There's such a concept. Some people who don't know about flowers. But if your spouse appreciates something, you appreciate it. Why? Because you appreciate them. So if I know somebody appreciates somebody else, I may not particularly know about them. But I respect it. I, I, if you love it, I also love it. If Hashem says, I love these people and you love me, so what do you mean you don't like these people? So Avas Yisrael is a pirish for Avas Hashem. So La'aretz HaShareka is really a very deep question. And that is, what thoughts will help me go to the land that Hashem is showing me. Right now, at this moment, I'm being triggered and I'm going down a certain neural pathway. But instead of replicating the same thoughts that I have always been reacting to this situation with, based on my own innate wounds or fears, or maybe the way I grew up, can I open myself up to mystery? And you know what? It's hard. Because mystery I can't control. But I don't have to control. It's very refreshing. Imagine if you don't have to control your responses to your child or to yourself or to other people. You don't have to be in control. You can let go of the need to control and really say, what can bring me to a deeper relationship with this person? What can bring us closer, which is my ultimate value? Is my ultimate value to be in a fight with these people? Or to be close to these people. But, but it's not my comfort zone. Some people have it in their marriage. Your spouse says something to you. And this message has already been said 20 years, 25 years, 35 years, 10 years. And you know the default mode is I go down this pathway and for the next six hours I feel alienated. I feel lonely. That's my comfort zone. That's my safety net. It's called survival mechanisms, coping mechanisms. Can I open myself up to a new reality, to a new mystery? I'm going to say, you know what? Today I'm going to allow my brain to go on a journey that I never, ever, ever went on. And I promise you, your neural pathways are going to say, no way! Don't check out this new highway. There may be ditches there and you'll die. Come on this highway. It's a, it's a dirty highway. It's a painful highway, but at least it's familiar. Familiar! We love familiarity. But what if familiarity keeps me stuck in a place of pain and negativity and toxicity? I'm not going to tell you where to go. The moment I tell you where to go, you're not going to be going to the right places. It's opening myself up to a vision that is infinite. And infinity, I can't hold on to. I can't grasp. Some people want to predict what their future is going to be like. They want to predict what their children are going to come out like. You want to predict, but this is not a machine. You put in material on one side and plastic comes out on the other side. And sometimes it's even painful with some children. You have to realize this. 
a couple was uh, told me last week that uh, they were struggling with many of their children, and they went to a, a very uh, they went to a, a very distinguished rabbi in Muncie at the time. He lives in Eretz Yisrael today, Rabbi Beryl Wine, and they asked him advice. And he said, the single hardest thing for you as parents is going to be to get your children through the school system. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's the hardest thing. To get your children through that school system is like a miracle. With some children, that's the fact. It's not a blame game. It's just understanding the fact that you can never compare people, you can never compare children, you can never compare families, never compare yourself to anybody else. You have to really know what is my calling, what is the land God is showing me, not you, He's showing me. This is my journey. This is your journey. And I sometimes want to predict, I'll do this, and this is what's going to happen. And then I set myself up for constant anxiety, and guilt, and shame, and all the other good things that we Jews have. Anxiety, guilt, shame. I don't know what the Rosh Tevis is. <laughs> I know it is. Oh gosh. <laughs> Anxiety, guilt, shame. I just made that up. We open ourselves up to fog, let's put it that way. <laughs> A lot of fog. <clears throat> you know what fog is, right? Fear, obsession, guilt. <laughs> and life becomes very foggy. Okay, I'm making up all my acronyms here today. But you get the point. Life becomes foggy. Fear, a lot of fear, a lot of fear. Because if I have a certain destination and I get lost, I'm fearful. If I don't have a destination, I'm not afraid. <laughs> if I'm obsessed, I'm very afraid. And if I'm feeling guilty, it's terrible. Because I live in that place. It's good to feel remorse if I, if I made a mistake, not to become defensive. But this obsessive guilt doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help relationships. And here's a very interesting thing. Sometimes parents think once their children are married and they're marrying off their own children, education ends. It's not the case. When my daughter, my son, your children, your grandchildren are 40, 50, 60, 70, you should have grandchildren who are 90. They could still use the confidence and the comfort that comes from a matriarch and a patriarch who really knows how to make space for them and really shows them unconditional love and pride. And on the contrary, sometimes with that maturity, without the defensiveness, we can create that space for them that is very, very meaningful and allows them to mentor a new generation with much more serenity. So I want to put my child through the system and I'm expecting exactly what it's going to look like. Hashem says, Ela oretz asher areka. Open yourself up to a life of mystery. Life is a hike. You ever went on a real hike? You know those real hikes? Rockland County has a lot of them. If the point of a hike was to get from point A to point B, I promise you, take a car. Much more logical. First of all, faster. (laughs) Less energy. Less exhaustion. (laughs) Okay, you won't have pictures. And you know what? In terms of the practical benefits, much better. Why does nobody take a car? <laughs> the answer is, the point is not the destination. The point is the journey. The point is the hike. 
Now, if you go on a hike, and instead of having a beaten track, a paved road, suddenly you meet boulders, and suddenly you meet branches all over the place, and suddenly you're jumping and you're climbing, and you're like, what is this? Meshuggah in a place. I pay taxes, the city can't make a path. And you say, no, 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 this is not a highway, this is a hike. <laughs> Adventure is the name of the game. We climb boulders and we step over branches and we tear over branches. Make sure you have a hiking stick. Make sure you have water. Make sure the main thing is you have a camera and make sure that your partner is not boring. That helps. (laughs) Unless you want to listen to music. (laughs) Then it's better. My brother told me he was driving with a classmate of his, an old classmate of his, to an event. And he, was, he didn't see him in, in like 20 years. And they were both going to some wedding, I think, of a friend. It was like a, a moving event. So he wanted to catch up. So he said, how have you been? And the guy said, one second, because he was texting. And the whole way he was texting. So my brother told me he decided he's going to send him a text. They were both in the back seat of the car. <laughs> so he texted him. So then he answered. It's the relationship that matters. The word for Jewish law is halacha. If you ask anybody, what's halacha? They'll say law, halacha. That's not what halacha means. Halacha really means a trail from the word halicha, lech lecha. The word halacha comes from the word lech lecha. It's a path. It's a trail. What type of path is it? Where does it take you? And the answer is it's a path towards infinity. It's a path towards the divine. It's a path that I can't control. It's a path that even if I learned something for 50 years and I'm amazing, but suddenly today there's a new path. Why? Because you're touching Ein Saif, and Ein Saif can't be captured by my brain. I can't control it. I can't own it. I can't master it. What I have to do is I have to surrender. I need to open myself up to what that journey looks like. So it's true in my own emotional responses to situations. I have to be able to say, okay, I know Ma'altzacha, I know Ma'altzacha. Hashem is not telling Avram Avinu, repress where you came from. Don't learn about your parents. No, you need to know everything. You don't have to run away. You don't have to repress. You don't have to deny. Can you have the courage? Lech lecha. Go to a deeper you. Go to a deeper you. I'm going to step away from the familiar highway of my brain. You know what? I'm going to choose not to react from this place, even though I'm experiencing the sensation of fear or anger or negativity, and I want to run, I want to freeze, I want to fight, I want to form. Come on a new pathway. Come on a new highway. It's surprising, I know. It's surprising because I'm doing this from four years old. I'm doing this from six years old. It's the only highway I know. But you know, it's a painful highway. Let's try out a new highway. But it's mysterious. Good. But I didn't expect it. But it's not supposed to be that way. But, you know, don't fight reality. Open yourself up to reality. So much anxiety comes from feeling guilty about my reality. So I'm either trying to deny it or destroy it. What if I can actually embrace it and say, this is exactly my journey? You know, there's a lot of snow here in the winter. Everybody knows. And Rockland County is pretty good with sending out the, the trucks to salt, to clean up the snow and salt it. The problem is when you salt highways, it corrodes the, the tar. So you'll see after heavy snows, after a winter, there'll be ditches, holes in highways from tremendous quantities of salt. So there was a ditch on one of the highways. 
And car after car was falling into the ditch and they had to get out. It wasn't Pashat. So finally, every car learned to take a swerve and already became part of the routine. You get to this place and you turn to the right. It's called Hakafas. And you go around. Finally, the city got enough complaints and they sent out a construction fellow, a guy who's an expert in this, with a pickup truck with the materials to go and fill the ditch. So he was driving and he had his passenger, his helper with him. And he comes to this point of the highway and what do all the cars do? They all swerve to the right. So what does he do? You got to follow the oilam, right? Altifresh min sibur. So what does he do? He also goes to the right to go around. His partner looks at him and says, Chachem, why are you going around? He says, well, obviously there's a hazard here. He says, yes, that's why you were sent. You were sent to fill this hazard, to fix it. Don't run away from it. This is your destination. In life, the ditch in my life is not a mistake. That's the land I was shown. My pickup truck has the tools to be able to confront it. My child was given to me, not to anybody else. My life was given to me, not to anybody else. My story was given to me, not to anybody else. That's the land that I'm showing you. You say, but I didn't expect it. I don't like it. It may be, it may be challenging, but it's exactly the land where I was sent to. Why can't you tell me where it is? I can't tell you where it is. Because you'll only find out where it is if you let go of expectations. That's the depth. If I tell you what it looks like, you'll never end up there. Because you're going to bring into the relationship expectations, so therefore I'm going to come again with my ego and my comfort zones and my insecurities. Only when I let go of expectations do I open myself up to hearing the new location. You get that? It's counterintuitive because I feel if you tell me where, it'll be much easier. I could control it. I could make a to-do list. Right, Every good balabasti, you make a to-do list. Wednesday, you already have everything for Shabbos. Thursday, you're cooked, right? Friday, 2 o'clock, you go on a walk. Not in the kitchen. I know somebody that had their Seder. I went to visit somebody once and they had their Seder table set up three weeks before Pesach. I kid you not. Some of us are setting it up in the middle of the Seder. My wife told me about a family she knew. They would do, I never heard of this concept, they would do practice packing. You know what practice packing is? A week before you go to Israel or wherever you go, a week before you pack up everything, practice. So you make sure the suitcases has enough space. If not, you buy a new suitcase, whatever it is. And then two days before you do real packing. You have to have a certain type of brain for that. Some of us are packing on the way to the airport. In the taxi, we're still packing. In the airport, you're still rearranging your suitcases because they weigh too much. Anybody knows that type? It's probably good to be somewhere in the middle. The problem is if you're married to one and you're the opposite. It's usually Lebedic around trip times. I was once traveling... (laughs) I was a yeshiva boy. I was once traveled to Ireland. <laughs> I was teaching there this summer. So I went with a friend of mine. So he told me that the flight, he was arranging the tickets. He told me that the flight was three hours earlier than it really was. <laughs> I come to the airport and I'm like, why'd you lie to me? 
He says, because you always come a half an hour before the flight. This is an international. I am giving you the wrong time. I was so early that time, I can't tell you. I made a chlot. I'm never coming so early to the airport. So it's good to be organized in life. This is not a statement not to be organized. Chaos, chaos, chaos. Chaos is not a way to live. Seder is a way to live. Seder means there's structure, there's order. Children need Seder. Houses need Seder. Lives need Seder. It's healthier for the brain when there's Seder in life. That's when it comes to the pieces of life. When it comes to the inner journey, here I have to be able to open myself up sometimes to something that is completely not organized. Because if I hold on to structure, I often get destroyed. It's like the Gemara says the difference between a cedar tree and a reed in a storm. You know the difference? The cedar tree is an action. I'm not going to do You don't touch me. A storm comes, a tsunami comes and destroys him. The reed goes with the wind. You think, oh, he's spineless. He's not spineless. He's smart. <laughs> he's not spineless. If you ever, you know, surfers, you don't fight waves. You go with the wave. No, no, no. I don't go with the wave. I am me. No, no. You have to be part of the wave. If I see myself as separate from Hashem, I'm busy fighting. This is my life. You're part of the wave. You're part of the ocean. It's the secret of the mikvah we spoke about last week. I'm part of the wave. You don't fight the wave. The wave is here to lift you up. The Gemara says in Yevomus 120, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Gamliel came to the base Medrash and he said, it's a pity Rabbi Akiva drowned. He was grieving. Rabbi Akiva drowned. A few days later, Rabbi Akiva walks to the base Medrash. He says, you? Where, where did you come from? I already... He said, I, I was in a boat. They were both in a boat. Rabbi Gamliel saw that Rabbi Gamliel's boat was a ship, became a shipwreck. And everybody went down. So Rabbi Akiva said, that's true. But I found Daf Echad. One plank of the boat I found. And I held on to that plank. Every wave that came to overwhelm me, I said, Shalom Aleichem. I, I bowed my head. Every gal, every wave. What was Rabbi Akiva teaching? Rabbi Akiva wasn't teaching not self-confident. You shouldn't be confident, you should be meek. Rabbi Akiva was teaching that the journey of life is sometimes tumultuous and there are waves that want to overwhelm me. I don't want to fight the wave. I say, this is the new land that you're showing me now? I'm in. I embrace it. I embrace it. I bend my head. I surrender my head. Surrender my head means I'm not going to get stuck in my ego. I'm not going to get stuck in my defensiveness. I'm not going to get stuck in fighting you and getting angry at you and getting angry at me. And getting having anxiety from the fact that it's not supposed to be this way. So either I'm a horrible person or you're a horrible person. So either I'll run away or I'll fight or at least I'll just get so anxious. But what if I could say, maybe my destination is not something I ever knew or anticipated. It's exactly where I am. And I could let go of expectations and open myself up to a different type of journey. This is a very personal experience. It's really not even a lecture what I'm doing now. I know I'm speaking as a shear, as a lecture. It's really, it's a, it's a meditation. It's really a group therapy type of thing or personal therapy type of thing. <laughs> now, I, I'm not going to have you all stop and start breathing and closing your eyes. You could do that later when you get home. 
But what I'm trying to say is it's a very personal experience, a very personal journey. Everybody knows it in their life. And it's not an avoid I do once, and I mastered it. Every day, lech lecha is a daily instruction. Because yesterday's, yesterday's redemption becomes today's exile. Yesterday's emancipation becomes today's expectation. So today I'm challenged and I'm empowered to say, you know what, can you open yourself up more? Can you open yourself up more? No, no, I already know everything. No, no. <laughs> the moment I know everything, I know nothing. He says, Can I open myself up? What's the journey today? What's the opportunity today? And don't worry, life will offer you a new opportunity every day. Especially if you got kids. <laughs> Wherever you are in life, life will offer you a new opportunity every day. A new opportunity to flex muscles to flex and stretch. We all know what stretching is like. Stretching is not comfortable. (laughs) If it's a real stretch, I'm stretching myself. But it allows for the circulation to flow. It allows for the adrenaline. It allows for more energy. There's also spiritual stretching, emotional stretching. The ultimate stretch is, I'm not telling you where you're going. So which muscle do you stretch? You stretch the muscle of opening yourself up to mystery. It's called the muscle of surrender. The muscle of surrender is a very, very powerful muscle. Can I stretch it? Stretching it means not I surrender in the sense that I become a shmatachas I surrender in the sense I open myself up to a much higher self. My chelekelekamimal, my divine calling, my lech lecha. Ela oretz There's an interpretation, asherareko. Klayakar, or one of the Mepharshim, means not only the land I will show you, the land in which I will show you, you. The land which will allow you to lift up a mirror and hold a mirror to yourself. The land, Areka in Hebrew means I will show you, and Areka, I will show you to you. Imagine I tell you, you could meet this person, and when you meet this person, all this person will do is, she will hold up a mirror to you. <laughs> Those are the best meetings. They will hold up a mirror so you can see you. Hashem says, I want to hold up a mirror to you. This is the land that will hold up a mirror to who you really are. For this, I have to be able to say goodbye to who I expected and anticipated I am and what my life has to look like. Because if I hold on to that, I'll never ever be able to seize the moment, carpe diem, I'll never be able to open myself up to this opportunity. So here's the counterintuitive lesson. The counterintuitive lesson is, if I tell you where you're going, you will never be able to go to that place. Only when I don't tell you where you're going. In other words, you have to be able to say, I don't know. That's when you find that place. Because in those words, I don't know, there's so much depth. It means I'm not taking it personal. I'm not controlling it. There's no ego. I'm not obsessing. I'm not afraid. It's not about guilt. In those words, I don't know. Shichichi. I could forget. I could say, you know what? I don't know. It's fine. Show me. I'm open. That openness is not a weakness. That openness is your greatest strength. It's like a body that could just stretch. If I can't, I'm stuck. The moment you need me to be flexible, oh, no, 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 I don't go there. I have to get angry. I'm the cedar tree. I fight you. But if I could stretch, why can I stretch? 
because I'm comfortable in the place of not knowing. Yosef HaTzadik in Tehillim says, Paroi was impressed by Yosef. Edus bi Yosef somay mitzrayim. Sfas loya dati eshma. It says that Pari was blown away by Yosef. Why? He said, I heard the language that I don't know. So the basis, so the Gary Rebbe once said, Pari had many khartum and many experts. They all had common, one common denominator. They always said, I know. The first one who said, I don't know, was Yosef. Pari said, what's the meaning of my dreams? And you know what he said? Biladai. <laughs> Hashem knows, I don't know. I'll try to be a conduit and tell you what Hashem thinks. <laughs> I don't know. Pari said, you don't know? Whoa, you're my man. You're my prime minister. What is the yichus of not knowing? I also don't know. I'll tell you why. Because in life, the ability to really say, I don't know. <laughs> you ask me what time it is, I don't know, I don't know. But to really say, I don't know. I don't know from a place of deep openness to infinity. I don't know, not because I'm lazy. I don't know, not because I'm weak. I don't know because I'm opening myself to a reality that's higher than knowledge. That's higher than seichel. That's higher than asaga. That's why I don't know. Ooh, now you become infinite. Now you become infinite. Now you become a channel for a whole different level of a journey. Therefore, for a whole different level of success. Makes sense what I'm saying? I hope not too much, though. Because if it makes too much sense, it defeated the purpose, right? Like I told you last week about the self-help section in Barnes & Noble, you remember? It should make a little sense, but not too much sense. And, and, and this is very practical in people's lives. Sometimes a family experiences a terrible tragedy, the worst thing we can do at such a time is say, I have it figured out. Sometimes you experience within yourself a terrible sense of loss or a surprise of any level. It could be psychologically, physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, affecting you, affecting your loved ones. Maybe many people, that th- pe- things that people don't know about. Sometimes people discover things later in their life and it changes your whole trajectory. The worst thing you do at that moment is, I know, it's not a big deal. I have it figured out. We got this covered. We don't got it covered. We don't got it figured out. But I'm going to be open. Open sometimes comes with a lot of grief because I have to say goodbye to the land that I do know. I do know this land. It's very safe. I always walked on this path. It was very, Suddenly it's blocked. I can't go here anywhere. Can't go here. It's a very, very vulnerable place. But Hashem tells Avram, if you go with me on this journey... You won't lose yourself. You'll find yourself. In fact, you're going to become a source of blessing for the whole world. Every nation will be blessed by you. You're not going to die in this process. You're going to become eternal in this process. You're going to become immortalized in this process. What do you mean there's nothing going to be left of me? Everything is going to be left of you. Because you're on a different journey. You know, last year I picked up a book. Somebody lent me a book. It was titled, The Happiest Man on Earth. And I was very surprised by the, by the title. Who's the happiest man on earth? So I opened the book and I read it. It's a biography of a man named Avraham Yakubovich. Talking about Avraham. Abraham Jakubovich. He writes a biography. Okay? And I have to say, probably one of the old, one of the, maybe in history, a book that was written 
at the age of 100. I don't know if I ever saw a book written by a man 100 years old, Avram Yakubovich. Moshe wins. Moshe wrote the title when he was 120. <laughs> but that doesn't count because he was taking dictation. <laughs> but this man at the age of 100 wrote a book. So I read through the book. It's a fabulous story. It's good to read. The happiest man on earth. He was born in 1920 in Leipzig, Germany, Prussia. 1920. When Hitler came to power, his family changed his name because they sent him to engineering school. They didn't want him to be persecuted. In 1938, November, November 8th, he came to surprise his parents for their 50th wedding anniversary. He came into the house. Nobody was there. Of course, it was Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. His family of 20 went into hiding. He was left. He was in the house alone. He didn't know why his parents were out there with their dog, Lulu. Five o'clock in the morning, 10 SS monsters came in. They attacked him. Lulu tried to protect him. They killed the dog. And they engraved a swastika with one of, the, one of their boynets, one of their guns. Somebody engraved a swastika on this boy, Avram Yakubovich. He said, that moment I lost my dignity, my humanity. They sent him to Buchenwald. He escaped Buchenwald, escaped Germany, ended up in France, got arrested, and was put on a train to Auschwitz. From the train station, he stole a screwdriver and a hammer. He had a nine-hour journey from France to Auschwitz. For close to nine hours, he was unscrewing the, they called flashboards, the, you know, those uh, boards on the bottom of the train. And when we were at the border leaving France in Stras- near Strasbourg, he crawled under and he got out. <laughs> he escaped to Belgium. His family also escaped to Belgium and he met up with them and they were hiding on an attic. In 1943, somebody informed upon them to the Gestapo and the whole family was sent to Auschwitz. Mengele sent both of his parents to the gas chambers immediately. Because he was an engineer, he survived. This man escaped from Auschwitz, a very resourceful guy. He pushed escape from Auschwitz in one of the trucks but he was shot by a Polish farmer in the leg, and he realized he won't survive, so he went back to Auschwitz. He walked back, the Nazis never realized he disappeared, and a Jewish doctor took out the bullet from his calf, and ultimately he was placed on a death march in 1945. The death march, he walked for days without bread, without water, and if you stopped for a moment, you were shot, and he realized he can't, and he saw a ditch, he saw a ditch, And he managed to escape and jump into the ditch without being noticed. And six months he was in a ditch surviving on snails and snugs. And water, there was a stream of water. The water was poisoned. So after six months he became poisoned and he became deathly ill and he couldn't stand. So he decided to crawl to the nearby highway hoping that a Nazi will see him and shoot him and take him out of his misery because he was just deathly ill. This was May 45, but instead of a Nazi seeing him, an American tank saw him. They lifted him up. They put him in the hospital. He was there for six weeks. The nurse told him when he came in, I don't think you're going to make it, but he survived. He survived. He went back to Brussels to Belgium, Brussels, to see maybe somebody survived. He had one sister who survived, Henny. She was also in Auschwitz. And he met her. And they rented an apartment. He got a job. They rented an apartment. And he said, one day, 
he saw in the newspaper that two Jewish girls went up on a bridge in Brussels and they jumped off to kill themselves, but they landed on a barge and they survived and they were arrested because you weren't allowed to do that and they were put into a mental asylum in, uh, in Brussels. Two girls. And he said, yeah, he said, Eddie said, I decided I have to go visit them. And he got permission, he went to visit them and he spoke to them for a few minutes. He saw that the conditions in the institution were, were horrible. They were appalling. They were inhumane. And he's speaking to these girls. They were both in Auschwitz. And he realized that they're completely lucid and sober, but they just didn't want to live. They didn't commit suicide because they were mentally challenged. They just didn't want to live because they lost everyone in their family. They didn't have a will to live. He went to the director of the institution, and he said, these girls don't belong here. They don't belong here. They were in Auschwitz. I was in Auschwitz. Let me nurture them back to health. Besides, anybody who comes in here, even if you're normal after three, three months, you go out mad. He gave him permission. He took the girls into him and Henny, his sister's apartment. And because they were both in Auschwitz, they can empathize with these girls. And they literally nurtured them back to health. And they say, he sent them off. And he writes there, they got married. They continued, they married two Jewish men. They continued their correspondence. He met in Brussels a Jewish girl, another survivor, Flora. He married her. And they moved to Sydney, Australia. He said, but I was such a bitter, miserable man. I was miserable. And then in 1950, his first child was born. And he writes, he says, I looked at my first child's face and all the joy that I had till I was 18 came back to me. He said, and then I made a choice. I'm not only going to be happy, I'm going to be the happiest man on earth. He said, I decided I'm going to be happy. I'm going to love life. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to love people. I'm going to be kind. At 100 years old, they told him it's time to write a book. So two years ago, he turned 100, and he published his book, The Happiest Man on Earth. The same year, he gave a TED Talk, 6,000 people, and he told his story. And he said, I learned that every day I have to choose love or hate, friendship or negativity, celebration or misery. He said, I still miss my mother like crazy. She was gassed in 1943. So he said, if you have a mother, go home, hug her and tell her that you love her because I can't tell that to my mother since 1943 when she was taken to the gas chambers. He finished his speech. It was really moving. He got a standing ovation. People were, were mesmerized. But he added one detail. He said when he was a kid, his father used to tell him, Abraham, his name was Avram, Avram Abraham Jakobovitz, and later became Eddie Jakub. <laughs> Avram became Eddie, Abraham became Eddie, and Jakubovitz became Jakub. He says his father used to tell him, Abraham, Eddie, there's always more joy in giving than in taking. He said, but he never understood what he said. In 1946, when he saved those two girls, the Jewish girls from the mental asylum in Brussels, and brought them back to life, and gave them back their soul. He said his father's words came to life. Eddie, there's always more joy in giving than in taking. At the age of 101, literally one year ago, Vav Cheshven, Tovshin Pei Beis, he returned his soul to its maker. At the age of 101. October 12th, 2021, the sixth day of Cheshven, 5782. Tovshin Pei Beis, Vav Cheshven. So this is his first yard site, his first yard site. And when I was 
reading the story and contemplating his life, I thought to myself, the happiest man on earth? Shouldn't the title have been the most miserable man on earth? After all of his experiences? After everything he went through? After everything he saw? After everything he saw? How did he turn his life to the point that he could sell a book and it sold very well. It sold in the millions. <laughs> the happiest man on earth and he really believed it. I'm not sure I know the answer. And it'll probably be pretty audacious to say that I know the answer. But perhaps one aspect of it has to do with this Lech Lecha. If Eddie Jakku would have decided this is what my life is supposed to look like in order for me to be happy, I promise you, Happiness could not become part of his life. But he had that courageous flexibility. The gift Hashem gave the first Jew and every Jew since, every descendant of Avram Avinu. And really, by extension, a gift that the Jews ought to bring to the world. And that is that real profound ability to be able to open myself up to the mystery of life's journey that I may never be able to fully understand and know, and grasp, and control. That I won't be able to grasp through intellectual creativity or genius, but I will be able to touch through every day's experience of breathing the joy of being immersed in life, and in the gift of life, and in the ability every moment to ask, what is the land that you want to show me today? Because that's the land where I want to be. Have a wonderful and beautiful week. Thank you. Next week, 9.30, Tuesday, a.m. Yeah, excellent question. Yes. So I don't think we could negate our triggers. I think we can have compassion. It's a moment of like an opportunity. Right. Yes, it's an opportunity for connection. So I think the process is... First of all, you got to breathe. <laughs> Second of all, you have to have empathy for the trigger because it's coming from a very real place. Open the fridge. There's nothing to eat. Right. So I'm being triggered. I would love to give you a speech about a lot of things. And I could feel that. And I can have compassion that this is my feeling. And I could make space for the pain that I'm experiencing I could, without judging it. Well, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. You can't skip this. If you skip this, if you skip this and you repress the pain, it's going to come out in a passive-aggressive way. So you don't skip this. You have to first feel that it's painful. It's painful. It's difficult. Only after that, okay, almost like I have to cuddle the baby inside of me that needed that assurance that her pain is, is justified. My pain is justified. I'm not a bad person. After that, <laughs> take a moment, yeah, take care of it. And then I have to choose and say, this is an opportunity for connection. What can I say that instead of creating distance, will create more connection, right? And, okay, we all do, it's not, we all do. And I think then we can validate we could say, oh, I'm so sorry you feel there's no food. What, what do you think we can do? In a very calm way. Right, so just like open it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's be curious together. 
I wouldn't like argue. Oh, there's a lot of food. Oh, don't be spoiled. Oh, make yourself an egg. Oh, it's a good question, right? Because it's not coming from the facts. Her statement about no food is not a fact. You understand? There's 90,000 things to eat. We all ate dinner tonight. There's a lot of leftovers. But the chicken is disgusting. The potato is more disgusting. The rice is horrible. Right? Bagels. So I would validate and then be curious. Yeah, that's a good question. What do you think? First of all, you're not the enemy anymore. You're on her team. You're a friend. Oh, yeah, I also say, yeah, let's take a search. And then she has to come up with the idea. You don't have to come up with the idea. <laughs> I know, I love the idea, but the defensiveness just kills everything. Yeah. Defensiveness doesn't make people closer. People use kibbutz of aim because they're becoming defensive. I said, you don't need it. It's, you don't have to be defensive. This child is in pain. Don't be defensive. They're not, they want to be close to you. You understand? They're not bad people. Hatzlacha. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.